So again, welcome to Deep Creek Baptist Church. It's uh, the message this morning is not a message uh, that is going to be uh, overly joyful. It's it's a tough message, and it's a message that needs to be talked about in our community and in our country today, in our world. Um, the message this morning is the sanctity of life. Pastor Jerry wanted this message to be preached here, and he was going to come do it. And of course, um, he's feeling under the weather, so he asked me to fill in. And this is, of course, something I've spoken about with my kids, with my coworkers, with my friends, with my wife. But it is not a message I've ever had to preach or teach uh, in front of anybody, really, of an audience. But it's important, nonetheless, and this is something we should all, as believers, be talking about. There's going to be a little different angle to this than you might have heard before. Because the damning speech of the church towards sinners is not always the answer to making our world a better place or to sharing the gospel. I think anybody who shared the gospel with anybody who's not perfect would agree that we are all sinners and we all need his grace. I want to read a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's a German Lutheran pastor who gave his life in World War II. He was hung to death by the Germans for being a faithful believer. As you know, the Germans had no problem taking human life. They did not care. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer had to say. Destruction of the embryo in the mother's womb is a violation of the right to live which God has bestowed upon this nascent life. Nascent means potential, so the ability to grow and learn and do things. To raise the question whether we are here concerned already with a human being or not is merely to confuse the issue. The simple fact is that God certainly intended to create a human being And that this nascent human being has been deliberately deprived of his life. And this is nothing but murder. I almost think we could stop there. Brilliant theologian. Passionate man who gave his life for the lives of many. Not a proud guy. Not a guy who boasted in a large church. But a man who escaped from Germany and then turned back to look to see the millions being killed, thought they need to hear the gospel before they die and goes back and then himself is murdered. The Germans that were there that were executing people, this is some of their thought. This is some children will leave such difficult lives that they are better off dead. In 1920, a German jurist and psychiatrist published a book. I won't try to tell you what it's called in German. I would not do very well. But the English translation is Permitting the Destruction of Life Unworthy of Life, in which they advocated exterminating children and adults with handicaps who led difficult lives. They argued that ending unhappy lives was 
in the best interest of all concerned, the child, the family, and society. I don't know if I've ever heard much more of a statement about a human being trying to play God in my entire life. That a man, a person, would actually say that they have the liberty, they have the right to destroy another human life based on its potential to not be happy or productive. Or for the parent to be happy or productive. How dare they? There's probably not another statement in all of human history that says, I am God more than that. I get to decide whether you live or die based on my assumptions about how your life will turn out. How disgusting. So, Friday... We celebrated a day, the 22nd, if you weren't aware, and there's a reason why it was not publicized well, and I'll get to that in just a moment, called the National Sanctity of Human Life Day. So it was actually Ronald Reagan who instituted this day. He issued the first presidential proclamation of the National Sanctity of Human Life Day on January 13th in 1984. He designated Sunday the 22nd as a day of commemoration. George H.W. Bush, who became president after him, his vice president, continued the proclamation. So each year on the 22nd of January, we took a day to just look at ourselves as a community and as a nation and say, human life matters, it has value, and we need to recognize that. After George H.W. Bush's presidency, President Clinton was elected. He discontinued it for eight years. George W. Bush resumed the proclamation during his presidential term of eight years. It may surprise you to find out that President Obama discontinued it for eight years. President Trump resumed it. This past Monday, President Trump issued the proclamation again. On Monday, the proclamation was listed on the whitehouse.gov website. Wednesday, when our new president was inaugurated and the machine started to turn, the proclamation was removed from the website. It will not be a proclamation under this presidency. We will not remember the value of human life for the next four years at least. See a trend? I want to read to you President Trump's words. Let me preface this with, I do not believe that our former President Trump held some special seat in the church. I'm just pointing out the facts of where our presidents stood. And I want to read his words because this is what the proclamation stated on Monday. And as the leader of our nation, this is where we were following up until Wednesday. Every human life is a gift to the world, whether born or unborn, young or old, healthy or sick. Every person is made in the holy image of God. The Almighty Creator gives unique talents, beautiful dreams, and a great purpose to every person. 
On National Sanctity of Human Life Day, we celebrate the wonder of human existence and renew our resolve to build a culture of life where every person of every age is protected, valued, and cherished. He added on to his message some facts about what it was going on. He said it had been almost 50 years. I think we have two years left. It's been 50 years since uh, Roe versus Wade, the court case that we decided to legalize abortion in the entire nation. And that abortion has resulted in the loss of over 50 million human beings since we made it legal. And I actually saw a number a couple of days ago as I was reading through some material that there are some estimates that say it's up as high as 63 million people have been killed. Over the last decade, abortions have steadily declined. I'm not sure what the the reason for that number is, but I have some speculation about some of the things the church has done uh, with pregnancy life centers, um, adoption and foster care. He asked Congress to help in protecting and defending the dignity of every human life, including those not yet born, and including support for women in unexpected pregnancies and support for adoption and foster care. He closed the proclamation by calling Americans to, and I quote, listen to the sound of silence by a generation lost to us. Then to raise their voices for all affected by abortion, both seen and unseen. I think that silence is loud. But I'm not here to talk to you about politics. Because really at the end of the day, it just doesn't matter, does it? It doesn't matter what a Democrat thinks or what a Republican thinks. It doesn't matter what our government makes legal or not. It really just doesn't. We can complain about it. We can argue about it with our friends online. We can post Facebook posts and tweets. They can silence the church through their idiocy on the internet. They can call us hypocrites. All that matters is what God says. That's it. Nothing else. It doesn't matter if they think that you don't care about the choice of a woman. That debate will never be won by us because they come from a position of foolishness. Especially when the arguments come that as, we'll just take myself for instance, as a white man that I cannot make a decision on ethics. Hogwash, I can. It's racist and sexist to think that a white man can't look at something and say, morally, that is incorrect. There, tables turned. So, what does God say? I think God has a lot to say about this topic. I apologize for my lack of humor that I try to instill into my sermons, but I don't think there's really much room this Sunday. Unfortunately, this is one of the hardest topics we have to deal with. 
So what does God say about children in the womb? He says a lot, actually. Zechariah the prophet, the oracle of the word of the Lord, coming to Israel, thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. So God formed the spirit of man. We all know the story of Adam and Eve. God made man. He made woman. He made them in his likeness, in his image, the Imago Dei. He formed the spirit. He blew that spirit inside of man. God created man. We did not come out of a primordial soup. We did not evolve. If you sit in a church and you believe that mankind evolved out of some sort of swamp creature and you start denying the Word of God in other ways, I challenge you, what other things can you take out of the Bible and explain away through your science? What next? The flood. Jonah. Jesus rising from the dead? When will you stop? Jesus made man. Jesus poured his spirit into us. Ecclesiastes 11.5 Solomon, possibly the most intelligent, most learned, and richest man ever to live in the history of humankind. Lots of great stuff to say. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. This is kind of an old school way of Solomon saying, if you don't get that God put that kid in that lady, then you're dumb. You don't get it. If you don't know that, then you don't know the work of God who made everything. I, it's, this is Solomon's kind of way of saying, hey, you picking up what I'm putting down? Job. We all know Job's trial. Job's struggle. Tempted by Satan. Satan tried to ruin him. In his faithfulness, he cries out to God and says, You clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. You have granted me life and steadfast love and your care has preserved my spirit. Job, even in his hardest times, even when things weren't going well, when people around him passed with boils on his body, hungry, his wife not being any support, his family, his friends hating him. He recognizes that his spirit is preserved by his creator who knitted him together. All of his parts. Isn't that something to be said for maybe somebody who's dealing with a choice to make? You think Job didn't have a choice? He easily turned away, ended his life, moved on to other things. King David. King David in the Psalms says this. It's regularly referenced uh, for this topic, but it's relevant nonetheless. Psalm 139, 
King David says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. God made and makes every child from the moment those two cells touch. Perfection begins. And God begins the process of growing an embryo, a child in the womb of a mother. What an amazing piece of scientific, miraculous joy that God is such an amazing creator that He can take the intimacy of a man and a woman coming together and nine months later adding to your family this beautiful creature that will grow in love and fellowship with you. And that whole entire time, God is doing all the work. I know some women might contend with me and say, I'm doing some of the work. But think, you don't even have to put any brain power into what's going inside of you, what's going on inside of you. God is in there making all the parts happen, making all the bones grow longer, making the organs work, making that little brain go. I can't help but wonder if while in there, if you can imagine being locked in a bag of water for nine months, that sounds horrible to me right now. But that child can hear its mother and its father. It can feel. And I can't help but wonder if God comforts it in the darkness inside of the womb. Like, I got you. I've got this. I'm making you. David goes on to say, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. He makes us perfect even when things don't look right or sound right. It's the way God intended it. Maybe not the way we intended it. It's the way God intended it. Who are we? Who are we? Creature from the dirt to decide that a child was not wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, says King David. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unforeseen substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when, you, when as yet there was none of them. Before the foundations of time, every single embryo that's inside of a body of a woman today in the past and tomorrow god knew the time the hour the second that that was going to happen he planned it and he knows exactly what's going to happen with that person's life good bad or indifferent god knew god did it it's his it is not ours The prophet Jeremiah says, Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Again, lending to God, knowing all of his children. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now, we can arguably say that Jeremiah is saying that God is telling him that I had a plan for you, Jeremiah. But does it not lend to God has a plan for every one of His children to fellowship in the body, to be loved, to love others, to spend time together, 
to worship and serve Him? Who are we to say that a child cannot grow to do that? We'll move forward. Paul in Galatians says, But when He who had set me apart before I was born, who called me by His grace. Paul again, saying that God set him apart, that He formed him, that He set him apart before He was born. So there's a plan, a plan for you. Isaiah says, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention. You peoples from afar, the Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, He named my name. All great evidences that God created with a plan before the foundations of time every single child in the womb through their development into adulthood. Now God knows that children are going to be killed in the womb. It is my belief that they go to spend time with Him. Probably one of my favorite verses or, or groups of verses that uh, passages that reference this specifically. We actually talked about here in Bible study on Wednesday evening. And this is from Luke 1, just starting about verse 39. Luke is telling us about Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Elizabeth coming together. Now, both have miraculously become pregnant with children. Elizabeth, pregnant with Jesus' cousin John, who will later become known as John the Baptizer. And of course, Mary, pregnant with our Lord Jesus at the time. And it says this in Luke, starting in verse 39, it says, In those days Mary arose and went with haste, so she hurried up, into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord." How miraculous that one child in one womb recognizes their Lord in another womb in such a way that the child leaps. Now for any men that are here, or men that might be joining us online, if you've laid in bed, maybe in the evening, with your pregnant wife when her belly is so fat that it looks like there are aliens inside of it and those little elbows and knees and the head are all moving around, you'll know that a baby can leap. Every once in a while, depending on what type of chili mama had for dinner or the music that's playing or what voices they hear, you can see right through the skin a big bump or a big jump, or whatever that child is doing in there, dancing away, or imagine that just in the presence of his Lord, John leaps 
for joy. She didn't just say he, he, he you know, oh, she's, you know, I had some bad unleavened bread yesterday and he's wiggling funny. She knew that the child jumped inside of her in response to, that's God in the room with me. I bring this up because if that was just a clump of cells, See where I'm going with this? There's absolutely no way a clump of cells with no thought, no feeling, no spirit, no soul, no recognition of its God could respond to our Savior. There's just no way. I know what the answer is, though. John the baptizer in Elizabeth's womb said, that's my God. That's my God. How dare a man say, that child has no rights and tear it from that womb. So I think we've made the case. I want to shift gears. I think we've sufficiently made the case what the Bible says about this. If you are here, or if you're listening online and you're a believer and you try to justify the murdering of a child in the womb through the idea of choice, well, you're wrong. That's the end of the story. There's not a Bible verse. The words written by our Lord, there's not one to support your case. I'm not sorry, I'm just delivering the message. You're wrong. God says it's wrong. God said they're His, period, end of story. I listened to a podcast a couple days ago as I drive to work, and it's a decent drive, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and I, if I'm going to teach or if I've got a subject in my head or I'm studying, I tend to listen to podcasts around that subject just to try to see what other perspectives are, maybe get another angle. And I listened to one a couple days ago. These three young kids do this podcast called uh, Coffee, Theology, and Jesus, I think. Um, I don't recommend it. Um, Supposedly they're believers. Uh, I won't question their faith or their salvation, but they're morons. Um, Actually making the case for choice um and it was an hour and 22 minute podcast i got 45 minutes into it and not one verse from the word of the lord shared well i don't know about you but if i sat in church for an hour and 22 minutes and listened to a pastor ramble on without utilizing the word of god we would go to the buffet and eat lunch because that's not church we're here for god his joy and his pleasure not for our own and our own thoughts, and our own feelings, and what we think. We're just not. And they brought something up that said, there's not one verse in the Bible. There's not one time that God said abortion is wrong. And then they argued, well, you know, there's stuff in the Bible about not killing, and there's nothing in the Bible. The word abortion isn't in there. 
There's no word in the Greek that means abortion. There's no word in Hebrew that means abortion. Well, they need to study some more. Didn't take me long. I challenge you. The guy who wrote the first five books of the Bible, Moses, the Mosaic texts, the second book, if one of those people from that podcast is listening, the second book is Exodus. Since it's a theology podcast, you should write that down. In Exodus 21, there's a story starting in verse 22 and it goes through verse 25. It's pretty interesting. We're learning a little bit about the rules and regulations that Moses would take from God and impart on the people of Israel. And they talk about men fighting and wrestling with one another. And this one, this one is interesting. Let me read it for you. Exodus 21, verse 22. When men strive together or fight and they hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out. But there is no harm The one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall oppose on him. And he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for a life. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, foot for a foot, burn for burn. Wound for wound, stripe for stripe. It's almost like God was really laying it down pretty hard here. If this doesn't say something about aborting children in the womb, I don't know what does. Imagine, if you will, this might even lend towards it being accidental. If whatever I am doing in my anger, in my strife, causes a woman to deliver that child early through some sort of physical harm, abuse, pain, or accident, or whatever it might be, and that child comes out, and the child is okay, God is saying through Moses, we can deal with that. We can can fix that. There's room for repentance. There's room for atonement. What God is saying here is, If you cause that child to come out and it dies, this is the price. Life for a life. You kill that child, you die. There's not a verse about abortion in the Bible. Give me a break. Eye for an eye. You pluck out my eye, pluck out yours. Anybody ever watch the videos of what they do to those children? How disgusting. Tooth for a tooth. Hand for a hand. Can you imagine if we were able to do that? How about a foot for a foot? I encourage you. Go watch one of those videos. Burn for a burn. That one reeks hard. Stripe for a stripe. 
There's another verse that you just can't get yourself around because God has laid this out and then Jesus emphasized it later. In Exodus 20 and verse 13, you don't need to turn there because you've read these before. You've read them to your kids, the Ten Commandments. Pretty clear. Thou shall not murder. Clump of cells. Matthew 5 is where Jesus puts the exclamation point on it. Context is a little different, but I think you'll get the point. Just hating is murder. Just the desire to take a life is taking a life, Christian. Proverbs. Lots of good stuff in Proverbs. If you hadn't studied the book before, I recommend it. Good living. How do we get better at being who we are as believers? When we read through Proverbs, some of this stuff's a little deep to digest, but there's a real good point to this. I want you to bear with me just for a a minute. In our contemporary church, we like to say things like, well, God is love. I can't say it softly enough to make it fit in most of the churches that are around. God is love. They want to weasel past all the difficult stuff so they can get away with their sin without any sort of accountability. God is love. That He is. He's also just. He can also be pushed to indignation. He can be pushed to a point where He has hate in Him. Proverbs 6, 16-19 says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. The author's not clear. The six out of the seven. I've looked at this a couple times. I can't figure it out. I don't know why that mystery is there. But these are the things that God hates. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue. The third is this. Hands that shed innocent blood. God hates the hands that shed innocent blood. Pro-choice believer. Proverbs 6, verse 17. Let me read it for you again, unless you didn't hear it clearly enough. God hates the hands that shed innocent blood blood clear enough he also hates a heart that devises wicked plans feet that make haste to run to evil and a false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among the brethren there's something else god hates as well and this is relevant and i'll tell you why in just a moment in malachi 2 malachi tells us from the lord for i hate divorce says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of armies. So be careful about your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. If you know anything about marriage or have studied marriage from the perspective of the word of our Lord, marriage is the example of the union of the fellowship of our Lord Jesus Christ, our bridegroom and his church, who is us, as we come together in fellowship, 
for our atonement, our sanctification, and our glorification. It is that relationship between a man and a woman that represents that relationship between us as a church and God. You know why God hates the divorce of a man and a woman? Because when we here make light of something He has given us as a representation of what He's going to do for us, we blaspheme Him. We make His death on the cross look insignificant. Although we know it was not. He wants us as men to lay our lives down for our wives like He laid His life down for the church. That is how marriage works. Because the marriage between the bridegroom Christ and the bride, the church, does not, cannot, will not work without Him laying His life down to death for His bride. Otherwise, none of it matters. Although it's not a sermon on marriage, it's relevant. It's relevant because if God hates all these things, if God hates the things that we're doing in our country today, then as a church, how do we turn the tables? If He hates these things, should we not strive to do just the opposite and do the things that our Lord loves? Should we strive to do things that bring Him joy, honor, and glory, and praise? See, I don't know if you know this or not, but some contemporary churches, atheists, non-believers, they look at us like we're a bunch of hypocrites. They just do. Some because they don't understand, because they don't know, because they don't study, because they don't read, because they're foolish. Some because our church is full of hypocrites. Full of people who say they love and believe in our Lord, but then don't love their neighbor, don't reach their neighbor, and don't do anything to perpetuate the gospel of Jesus Christ ever in their lives. Sunday mornings. Or, get this, just online. Find me a verse that says you can go to church online. I'm not against it. If you're watching right now, because you're sick or you need to be away, that's one thing. But to spend your entire life drinking stuff in off the internet and never fellowshipping with the body of Christ is not the intent. We need to fix that. We yell about abortion in the church. The other one we yell about in the church all the time is the LGBT agenda and gay marriage. And we yell about it because we've been programmed to latch on to hot political issues of the day and forget how we should be living our own lives. We see all that junk on TV and we hear it on the radio and we see it on the news and we latch onto it and we think it's the issue of the church to fix the society through voting, through the political process and through our own proclivities, not through the gospel. We're wrong. We need to fix it as a church as a body and as individuals, as believers, we need to fix our hearts to love people correctly the way God would have us love them. That is the message we need to bring. They're going to keep killing children. What do we do in light of that? Funny verse, Jesus said this. They look at us like we're hypocrites. 
What did Jesus say about them? By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love for one another. Well, what would you do for a young lady sitting in your midst who just had an abortion? It's funny, my wife and I were in the car yesterday and an old song came on, it's probably 20-something years old. Before I was a believer, this guy, Whitey Ford, the <laughs> Whitey Ford sings the blues. It is, it is not a Christian Uh, I don't recommend it. He sings about people being down on their luck and being judged by people in society. And one of the things he sings about at the height of the choice movement, you know, a little over 20 years ago, he talks about a girl who gets pregnant from her boyfriend who has now abandoned her and wants nothing to do with her anymore. Probably a familiar story to many. She has no support. So she goes to a clinic for an abortion. And as the song goes, when she walks through the door, they call her a killer, they call her a sinner, and they call her a whore. We've all seen it on TV or we've seen people outside of the clinics and some of them are doing good things. They are reaching people going into clinics for the gospel, but many others stand out there and say just that to our young ladies. Our princesses in our nation today are being called whores by the so-called Christian religious zealots who got nothing else to do but stand in their purple robes on their pulpit with thousands in their church and tell everybody else what a bunch of sinners they are. Newsflash, dude, you're the one going to hell. We can do better. How do we do better? Haughty eyes. What does that mean? What did the Proverbs teach us about pride? That we should be humble. See, there's people around us that are sinners, but some not as bad as us. We need to have humility. We need to reach our brothers and sisters in Christ in humility, and the people that are not believers with humility, with the gospel. Imagine how many lives could be saved by somebody in your community who has become pregnant, who all you might have to say is, what can I do for you? Put yourself below them and say, what can I do for you? Lay your life down for them. Lay your time down for them. Lay your money down for them. Lay your talents down for them. If you call the girl a whore, you're not helping anybody. Lying tongue, be truthful and honest. I know what lying is. Lying is coming to church on Sunday morning and smiling and shaking hands and telling everybody how religious you are. Latching on to the latest political commentary about how much you hate abortion or you hate the LGBT agenda, but then you don't love anybody. Liar. You hate people. Hating is murder. Murderers go to hell. 
There you go. End of the story. Shedding innocent blood. Again, we remove hate from our lives. It's difficult not to hate people. Just like some of you. I, I am quick to not like people. In a very unhealthy way, I am quick to not like people. It is something I wrestle with. If you're like that, you need to, you need to wrestle that out of your heart. You need to pray it, pray it away. You need to dig in. People aren't like you. They don't look like you, eat like you. They don't smell like you. You can't just hate them because they're not like you. Devise wicked plans and feet that run to evil. False witnesses. Hold your own churches accountable. How do we do that? Hold your own churches accountable. Men of the church, is the gospel being preached from the pulpit? Do you know if it is? Do you check? Are you holding your pastors accountable? Your deacons? Your elders? Are you making sure that when the men in your church step outside of the boundaries of what a Timothy or Titus servant would look like laid forth to us by the Apostle Paul, that we pull that person aside and say, fix yourself. We have a church to run. We need people to be acting appropriately, loving appropriately, serving the church appropriately. Are we holding our churches accountable? The money that they spend, the serving that they do. Don't support a false gospel. There's so much false gospel out there right now, it blows my mind. Part of one of the good things about this pandemic is, I hope some of those Joel Osteen and whoever that dummy is down in Charlotte, whatever that guy's name is, I hope the money dries up and you go away. You're making it hard on the rest of us who love Jesus. Stop telling people you're going to heal them. You can take your fancy worship and get out. We're here to love people for the gospel. There are people that are really hurting. They don't need your smoke machine. They don't need your skinny jeans and your $3,000 shoes. There are people that are hurting and they need Jesus. You can take that show and go. How about we actually walk a Christian lifestyle every other day of the week except for this one? What if we turned the tables and when we came into church on Sunday, we cussed at each other and treated each other like crap because we're brothers and sisters and that's what they do. They pick on each other, pull pigtails, and they fart, burp, and sneeze all over each other because they're siblings. And then the rest of the week, we actually act like we do on Sunday in church and we actually love people and embrace people in their sin. What would that look like? Sowing discord among the brothers. Love your neighbor like yourself. My neighbors don't agree with me. They don't agree with me politically. Some of them say they're believers and I know they've got some fanciful ideas of what being a believer is. I love them. They're my neighbors. I reach to them. I ask them what they need from me. Talked about divorce a bit. We need to raise our men to be men.
We need to raise our men to serve our women. We need to raise our men to love their community, their church, their country, the Bible, the Word of God. We need to raise them to be theologians. They need to learn the Word of God. They cannot be strong in the church and perpetuate the message if they're weak and ignorant. Sunday school for the youth is killing the church. Read the Bible every single day. Learn something new. It's full of the best stories you could imagine as a young man. It's got wars and battles and monsters and dragons. Our Savior comes on a white horse and slays the enemy. You don't think it's cool? There's not a movie cool enough to overcome this book. Raise our women to love themselves and respect their bodies. It's like they're our most precious asset. God gave Adam a woman from his side. I gave you this from you to love, to hold under your arm to be peaceful with, to lay your life down for, to coddle, to respect, to lift up. Our women deserve nothing less, but they need to know that in order to be in relationships with men who've learned the former. If we don't teach them that, then they end up with men who don't know then they end up in relationships that are unhealthy. Love your wives like Christ loved the church. Lay your life down for her. It doesn't matter how much your marriage sucks. It's your marriage. Deal with it. There's your marriage counseling class for the day. We can talk about the intricacies later. Right now, today, if your marriage sucks, deal with it. You married her. You lay your life down for her. Rub those feet. I don't care how crusty they are. (laughs) Counsel our church members to act and live like members of the body of Christ. Training. We should be training people to serve God here. I think that message is enough for us for today. But I'm going to end with just a couple of things. We as a church will stand up and say that we hate abortion. The president's made this day for us, which we don't need. I think it's cool. I think it's cool that as a nation, we take a day to say those children deserve more than death, than a death sentence. But if you're just going to complain about it, then just go home. If you're just going to complain about crap that the government does, The government is not God. Newsflash. Does anybody not get that? You really want to do something? Here's a phone number for you. Write it down. 910-947-6199. That is the phone number to the Life Care Pregnancy Center in Carthage, North Carolina. 
You want to make a difference? They need five things. It's on their answering machine. They need formula, diapers, wipes, clothing for children, and they need monetary donations, and they will not take uh, used car seats. Life Care Pregnancy Center. You care about stopping abortion? Then find out that there's a girl out there who doesn't want one, she's wrestling with it, and she's gonna go see them for healthcare, and through some donation that you made towards that facility, that child will see tomorrow. That's how you do something about it. You don't just tell your neighbors that they're sinners. Okay, well, thanks for the good news. We all suck together. Just telling your neighbor that they suck more than you doesn't make it any better because it reciprocates itself because you just told them they suck more than you means you actually suck more than them. See how that works? 910-947-6199, fix it. Uh, J.D. Greer, who I do not often reference, but I will today. Um, this past week, posted on his social media this, uh, this quote. And this is really him reaching out to the critics of the church. And this is important because I've heard this argument. I, I'm almost tired of having this argument with people because they're like, well, you don't adopt enough people or you don't take care of enough babies, you know, there's whatever. I mean, we can, murder's wrong. So let's get that out of the way. <clears throat> After we get over that, we can talk about the things the church is doing. These are some things he put up. He said, sometimes I hear people say, all you Christians care about is the preborn. Don't believe it. Since 1973, for every one abortion clinic in America, Christians have built three pregnancy centers to assist women in crisis. That's good. That's the church doing what it's supposed to do. They're buying groceries and helping them get housing and whatever else. Go into foster care, foster services and adoption agencies, and there you will find the group represented most are pro-life Christians and their friends. Christians have built more hospitals around the world than any other single group. For a long time in sub-Saharan Africa, there was not a single hospital that hadn't been built by a Christian mission. He's saying our church, this is Summit Church, has more than 10 ministries to mothers and families in crisis that our members are deeply involved in. So don't believe the tired trope that followers of Jesus only care about the preborn. A lot of people use that to excuse the fact they are virtually silent about the tragedy of abortion. It's hard to say that you're pro-life from the womb to the tomb if you're apathetic when the womb is the tomb. Difficult words from JD. The point here is this. We cannot yell at the godless and expect them to hear us just talk to them about their sin. We need to reach sinners for the cause of Christ. That's why we're here. It doesn't matter what the sin is. Just today we happen to be talking about the sanctity of life. But it's all sin that needs to be rectified, fixed, atoned for, paid for by God through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And when their heart is broken for grace, 
The grace that they receive that is given as a free gift from God, only then will they turn away, will they repent from their sin and embrace the sanctity of life. I'm going to close with this. In Mark 10, there's a story. James and John. I'd love to have been a wallflower during this conversation. You've probably heard the sermon before. They're talking about, they're talking with Jesus about like, I, I want to sit at your right hand. I want to sit at your left hand. Like, can you imagine? Like God came to live in the dirt with sandals and no showers and no restrooms amongst his people who are a bunch of dirty, filthy sinners. And they're like, hey, bro, can I sit at your right hand in paradise? Jesus, I just can't imagine once to look at these people and be like, are you a moron? Like, have you been listening to me at all? Do you not? And isn't it just a real look at humans? Like, that's what we do. Like, get ahead. How do I get ahead? How do I get to be the one that's more blessed than this guy over here? Like, can't you see that I work harder than they do? Can't you see that my church is better than that church? Can't you see that I lifted my hands up higher during worship? Like, I love God more because both my hands up and I was rocking back and forth. It's all an act. <laughs> James and John are there just giving Jesus the news. And I just can't imagine him putting his head in his hands and being like, God, I didn't, these people just don't listen to me. Like, why did I come back here? In Mark 10 and verse 42... After discussing this with them, I'll let you read the story yourself. Jesus calls the disciples into him. He's like, all right, school circle. We need to talk about this. He called to them and said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever whoever would be first among you must be slave to all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. Or many. This is our message on the sanctity of life. This is our message. Christ said that he came to give his life, in the Greek, his suke, his life, his breath, his entire soul, his entire being. That word in Greek carries so much weight because he's like, I didn't just come to tell you that I'm the way. I came here to give you my life. I'm going to die for you so you can get there. That's our example. Here's the point of this whole thing. He's looking at James and John and he's saying, you need to do what I'm doing. You need to lay your life down so that these people see that I'm the way. You're not going to be great up there unless you're the least down here. 
You're not going to do anything worthwhile up there. I did that. You need to put yourself down at a level where you're a slave to the people here. People need you. You need to recognize it. You need to serve them. We cannot continue to yell about the sinfulness of the world that will not change without the grace of God. That leads us to understanding the sanctity of life. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for our church. We ask for continued blessings that our church would be a light on the hill in our community. That we would always be willing to serve people in their sinfulness, in their depravity, whatever needs they might have, that you would find a way for us to serve them, to love them, to come alongside them, to feed them, to clothe them. Father, we pray for our community that people would reach out to places like Life Care Pregnancy Center and other places that we would serve them, that we would give to them, give of our time, give of our money, give of our resources, that they may be a resource for ladies in our community who don't know where to go, who don't feel like they've got any other choice but to terminate their pregnancy, that you would touch their hearts, Lord, so that they might know that there is somebody who cares, and that is us. We ask that our prayers be lifted up for our nation as well, Lord, as we go through changing political climates, that you would lay your hands over our leaders and help them to realize that you are in charge, Lord, you and you alone, and that it should be our desire to glorify you so that as a nation, we are a nation of refuge to the world, a light on the hill for all the planet to see how loving we are. We continue to bow our knees to you, Lord. You are great. You are a creator. You are a designer. You love us. As you laid your life down for us, we beg you, Lord, to give us the opportunity to lay our lives down for one another. For any young lady who has ever terminated a pregnancy, we pray for you, we love you. You are not bad. Come to us and let us love on you. If you are hurting and considering, we beg you, Lord, that you would touch these young ladies' hearts, any ladies' hearts, help them find a place where they can find shelter and love and people who would serve them. And we ask for all these things in the name of our mighty, precious Deliverer and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.